Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. Today, we have El Jefe. El Jefe is the boss man himself, Mr. Todd Thibodeau, president and CEO of CompTIA. Thank you for joining us on this episode. It's terrific to be here. Thanks for having me. So today, what we're going to talk about is leadership. And I asked you to come and anchor this podcast series that I'm working on, which is how do we help a hurting nation heal? And Uh, With everything going on right now, there's a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, a lot of of questions that we're going through. And me personally, individually, I have questions. And and I think it's easy to get lost sometimes when we look at the problems from this big scale of global and national, uh, much more easier to look at when we think about individual leadership and organizational leadership within the, the places that that we ourselves are part of. And that's why I asked you to be a part of this because I think that you do a phenomenal job at CompTIA. And I think that there will be much insight to learn from your story, your leadership journey. And I thank you for for making that time. I appreciate that very much. And I'm happy to share whatever I can about how I've gotten to where I am and where we wanna go in the future. Okay, so let's start there. How did you get where you were? Actually, before we go there, let's talk about the background of your leadership. Um, If you can explain the various leadership roles that you hold now and what those include, how wide and how far do they stretch? Sure. Well, CompTIA is an organization that started in 1982 and it started with a really good origin story. Four guys got together. They had breakfast at a restaurant, neighborhood restaurant near O'Hare Airport in Chicago, and they decided they wanted to create a group called the Association for Better Computer Dealers. So these were guys that were early pioneers in the computer industry, selling computers to other small businesses in the Chicagoland area and other businesses in the Midwest. So they each contributed $500 into a hat, a proverbial hat, to start the organization, and it kind of grew from there. And it's been growing by leaps and bounds during those years, right along with the IT industry and the tech industry, growing and getting new challenges, new technologies, new innovations, but it wasn't really until they started to develop certification exams for people who were working in the tech industry that they got enough money to really do anything of any scale and scope. And then it became CompTIA, which was the Computing Technology Industry Association. So I came to the organization in 2008. I've been here as the president and CEO during that time. We've grown by more than 100 employees during that time. We've grown our membership activities and functions. We've spread our global message of how to get great jobs in the, in the tech industry and in the IT industry. Our products and services were sold in 225 countries and territories last year. In fact, we had a board member who had a friend that was in Myanmar recently and saw posters for CompTIA training there. And then I looked and found out that we actually sold 10 certification vouchers in Myanmar last year. So we're all over the world. People know our brand. And our number one thing is to help people get jobs. 
uh, life-sustaining, family-sustaining employment in the tech industry. The average salary in the tech industry is about $106,000. So there are really life-changing opportunities for people that work in tech. As I said, we have about 250 employees or so. Our annual gross revenues are in excess of $90 million. And we have a charitable foundation. We have membership activities. We're doing lobbying. We do lots of research, networking. So all these great things that nonprofit associations do for their members, their charter is to help grow their industry. So our mission statement is growing and advancing the IT industry. So do you ever get overwhelmed by the amount of work that we're doing and the the people that we're reaching, does this ever get to you as a leader? How do you keep your composure and vision over time? I think that the most important thing is to always be consistent with your messaging and make sure that you always understand what are those top level messages that you're trying to do. So we have an acronym that we use internally called NETCAP and it's about networking. So we're trying to create networking opportunities for individuals to come together and learn from each other, discover best practices, discover those best practice frameworks that they can use in their business. So we do a lot of that through our membership activities. Then the E stands for education. We try to provide all kinds of educational opportunities to people who want to work in the tech industry, but also to companies who want to become better in what they're doing in their business. Thought leadership is the T, so we try to get out there and speak, to write editorials, to get the the messages out there that help people understand what they really need to be doing, what we're all about, and where we see things going in the future. Then the C is a big one. That's a certification training and opportunities for people. So certification is our main source of revenue. That's a big C in there. The A is for advocacy, where we get out there and make sure that the governments aren't enacting rules that will hurt the industry going forward or limit people's opportunities to get the money they need to to train and get better jobs. And then the P is for philanthropy, and that's a big part of what our foundation does. And we're helping thousands of people a year get jobs. Some people who've never turned on a computer before in their life, eight weeks later, they have a great job and are doing tech support for major companies. So that's our IT Ready program. So that net cap, if we stay true to that, and we stay true to the messages, and we always try to do things that further the interests of each of those letters, then we know that we're, we're pointing in the right direction. So that if you're changing course all the time and you're, you're modifying your position from that core set of pillars and values, then you can get yourself in trouble. But if you stay true to that and always point everything you do towards one of those things, it's a little easier to stay. But it, yeah, sometimes it's tough when you're traveling a lot and you're hearing a lot of different things from people. The, the interesting thing is when you travel the world and you visit different countries, every country thinks they're different and unique. But for the most and part, they're every, not. and they're not. Everybody has the same interests and challenges. Everybody's struggling to find the right people that they need for the jobs that they have open. And so we, we try to do things to help them. So you said people are struggling to find the right jobs and trying to find the right people. What are some of those other commonalities that you find as you travel? Because you do, you travel all over the world. We are a global organization. Does it, anything shock you in terms of they are just like us. This, we are just like them. Yeah, I think maybe initially when you, when you start to visit some of these places, you do, you're shocked into seeing, well, wow, this is just like us. That's not any different, the challenges. But I think the commonality that we see across all these countries is this thing we call the confidence gap, where these countries are struggling to find people who think they can work in this industry. Because over the past 10 to 15 years, we've started to talk about the industry in terms of STEM degrees and in terms of people having engineering backgrounds or math-related backgrounds. 
the whole STEM initiative has actually done a disservice to people who want to work in the tech industry because it started to convince them, and especially parents, that their kids need to be math and science geniuses to work in this industry. And that's not true. And so all the places around the world where STEM has become a very common acronym and term in their education systems, you've started to see this deficit of people who feel like they can work in the industry. So what we need to do is tell everybody that you can do this, that anybody can learn these skills if they have the right motivation. And especially people who are starting with good soft skills, good communication skills from the beginning, they'll tend to learn and do better in these almost from the get-go. And employers prefer those types of people. So I think that once you get past that, the cultural differences, you find out that they're having the same challenges to encourage young people to come in to this workforce. Mm-hmm. And that confidence gap is so important because it stops, it, it inhibits a lot of people from moving and taking that next step. In particular, minority communities yeah. where they maybe don't have good quality STEM teachers or curriculum within their schools, so they're limited from that factor but then they go out and not having exposure to those things. And then they go to apply for jobs that are saying they require these skills when that's really yes. not, they shouldn't do that. And, and it leads to this idea that you have to have a STEM degree and this whole college degree attachment to jobs, which is a limiting factor. So I think STEM, although it, I'm sure it has noble ambitions, I don't think it's done a lot of good for, for people trying to get jobs in the tech industry. Yeah, my husband, he had a, a dual degree he went to Elmhurst College, and when he got out, he had a, a bachelor's of science in computer information systems and then also information technology, and he couldn't find a job. And the reason being is he didn't have previous experience. A lot of other people had either an internship or knew someone, had a, an opportunity to gain that real-world experience while they were in college. And when he graduated, he just didn't have that to, to the same degree. Um, and he worked, he started working at Best Buy Geek Squad. That was his door in. Someone right. said, hey, I'll hire you for this position. And then he was able to grow. But to that point of the competence gap, and especially for minorities, sometimes it's also a, a matter of leadership and having people in your life who can encourage you to go down a route that if you don't have anyone in your family who's in technology already or working these great jobs that we know exist, it's hard to understand that they're there that, and that it's for you as well. So I think yeah, that's, that's the exact examples that I use when I first kind of explain the confidence gap to people. If you're a young black man living in an urban community, you, you might have some reasonable exposure to people, not a lot, but at least maybe one or two people. If you're that same Latino or black youth living in a rural community, you don't know anybody who works yeah. in the tech industry. So the exposure to those people where you can say, yeah, I could do that too. Mm-hmm. You just don't have those opportunities. And so that no. gap gets even bigger. And we did some research that actually proves that point that people, that young people in rural communities, their confidence gap is actually bigger than people who live in urban communities because of that idea of that exposure. Mm-hmm. So true. So why technology? What got you into technology? How did you know that this was the route for you? Yeah, I don't know. My dad was an engineer. He worked for Western Electric and he came out of the Air Force. He worked for IBM for a little while, was a car mechanic. So he was always kind of a real hands-on fix-it kind of guy. And I think I just kind of picked up some of that from them. But I love the idea some, I did some early coding. I had all the Radio Shack kits, these liquid fuel cars that you could drive around, radio control cars, planes, rockets, kind of all technology. I read tons of science fiction as a kid, the Tom Swift 
books that were really good. As a kid, I built lots of models. I don't know. I think I just love to explore these things as a kid. I spent a lot of time as a kid, you know, doing these things on my own and love the kids, love to build things, kind of have that engineering thing in my blood and tech just kind of led me down that path, I think. I also started working at a really early age and so I got money as an early yeah. age. I started my first part-time job when I was 12 years old. I worked in a lumber stockyard and the cool things to spend your money on when you were a kid were tech. So buying that very first Walkman, I mean, when the very first ones came out or getting that really good color TV or stereos, which were so important, or car stereos. So yeah. even though there's more things to buy today, we still had some things to buy back in the day. So I just, I just love tech. I love how it could enhance your life. I love how you, it was something that you used every day, something that you could share with other people, their love of it too. And I think that just kind of took me down that path. And then I worked for the Electronic Industries Association, which was a nonprofit group in the Washington DC area that represent the, the electronics industry as it was called kind of at that time and worked there for some years and then worked for the Consumer Technology Association and then came to CompTIA. But I had a love of technology. I was building computers, doing coding, doing all these things before that. But I think it, it really you know, came down to what I was exposed to in the house. My dad built his own stereos. I built mm -hmm. a color TV when I was 10 years old. It took me two years to build it and it blew up after about three months of, of use. But I, I just love the hands-on nature of tech and whether it's hands-on with your brain and a keyboard when you're coding something or hands-on and putting a computer together physically. I just love that, that part of it. So when you were growing up, it's, is it safe to say that you had a lot of confidence in your ability to build and your ability to create something that was essentially not there before? I think you know, for, for me, yeah, that desire to just jump in and try stuff. I'm definitely a learning by doing kind of person and I don't, tend to steer away from something. Oh, hey, I, that's a challenge. Let me try that to see if I can do it. I did that learning to play piano. I write short stories. So, you know, poems, other things, uh, build things. I've installed electronics in all the houses that I've lived in, rebuilt cars. So there's like, it's a challenge. So you jump in there and do it. So there was no, never any hesitancy. I don't think I had that. I had confidence gap probably in some other areas, but it wasn't in things related. To oh yeah, give me an area in which you did have a confidence gap. <laughs> was there ever a project in which you were scared to tackle that maybe you even didn't tackle that maybe yeah. you still think of to this day? Nothing? Probably not something scared to tackle, but something <laughs> that once you got into it, you're like, why did I do this? Because something that would be a bigger project than, than you probably thought initially. Yeah. There was, uh, when I worked at one of the organizations, that we needed to be able to do analysis on import-export data for electronics. And all I had were these paper books. And I hand-entered all this data from a year's worth of reports. I think it was something like 250,000 cells. And about halfway through that, I wished I hadn't bought into doing that. But I wanted to do the analysis, and I had to have the data in a spreadsheet to do it. Uh -huh. so it's, it's more that situation where you get into it, and you're like, what have I gotten myself into? But you have yeah. to finish it. So mm -hmm. someone who, who does that but doesn't like loose ends too, you know, it can be a challenge. I mean, and that speaks to your ability to just get in there, jump in there, and you still learned a lesson there. You still were able to, to proceed with it despite. Right. And then you can, the, the beauty of doing things like that is then you can share those with other people. So yeah. if someone comes to you and says, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, maybe you've done that and you can share that with them. So 
you know, part of doing those things is then the ability to share that with others. Were you always in leadership roles from an early age? If you started working younger, I'm assuming you're advancing and kind of getting your, your professional, you know, acumen, business acumen up to par. How did that start out? Yeah, I think the, the early work was more around expanding emotional intelligence early, understanding how to deal with challenges, how to understand dealing with accountability, managing your emotions, all the things that emotional intelligence is really all about, understanding what it means to show up on time and do a good job every day, to take pride in your, in your work, even if the other people around you are not. And I've yeah. worked in plenty of situations where, where that was the case. So I think it's more from that. But then you know, when, you, when you get into a situation and you see opportunities to distinguish yourself, to move up through the ranks, to go above, above and beyond what other people are doing around you, that's really what gets you. But a lot of times what happens in leadership roles, I think, people who end up being good individual contributors get promoted into leadership roles where they might not necessarily be ready or they might not be natural fits for those jobs. So I certainly had to learn about a lot of things over time to be able to deal with that. And one of the things that, that I really think of as a manager is you can't be one person for all the people that you work with. You have to be whatever that person you're working with needs at that time. So if they need you to be a listener at that time, if they need you to be someone who's really pushing them, if they need you to be the innovator, you're the one that has to morph and change based on the needs of the people around you. And I think I learned quite a bit of that watching people and I learned just as much by watching people who did things in ways I wouldn't do them and mm -hmm. being able to say, well, I wouldn't have handled it that way. I would have handled it this way. And it gives you great examples. The, one of the people that I, that I worked with in the past, you know, he did a lot of great things, but there were also things that I saw him doing that I disagreed with. And at that point, as an employee, you have a choice. You can either kind of go along with that and be okay with it, or you can leave the organization or you can fight for change. And in this particular case, I was very fortunate for this job at CompTIA to open up around the time that I'd made the decision to leave that prior organization because I wanted to strike out on my own and set the agenda for an organization from the ground up. What was that thought process like? Like you're in a position, you're I think what you're second in command at that time, correct? Yeah, I mean, or close to that, sure. Close to that, we're high up, right? Yeah. And you're going to leave it. And and for the chance of, you know, maybe striking out, maybe doing well, you're bet you're betting on yourself, right? What's that thought process like? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you look back and you think, wow, what was I thinking at that time? But again, you you just reach a point where you can't continue in that. You're not being honest to yourself to stay in that. And even though when when we've had to let people go in the past, in the long run, you're actually doing those people a favor in some ways. Because if, they're, if they've give, been given ample opportunity to contribute, you've done everything you could to help them be successful, and then they're not, eventually that person maybe needs to move on and find opportunity some other place. Mm -hmm. We've had situations where we've, we've let people go, and you could actually watch the stress just melt off them. Because people recognize if they're not doing a good job in the organization where they are. And that's a really terrible feeling to come into work every day if you feel like you're not contributing, if you're not doing a good job. Now, if the organization is not doing their part in giving and helping that person be as, as good as they can be, shame on that organization. But in situations where you do make those efforts and the person is still not being able to contribute in the ways that they want or that you want them to, it's, it's good for them to move on. And I didn't necessarily feel that way when I, when I left. It was more a situation where I just needed a different set of challenges. 
I think my opportunities had tapped out there. That person was never going to move on. And in fact, that person is still in that job today. <laughs> so <laughs> I would wouldn't have did. gotten that opportunity. So I had to go out and find my own. You don't regret it. No, obviously. no, no, not in, not in any way. It's been the best opportunity. I, I've gotten to visit 74 countries during my time here. I would have never gone to so many countries and have experienced so many cultures that I've gotten to. We've traveled all over Asia. We've traveled all over Africa, all over Europe, all over South America. There's really no region of the world that we haven't been. It's easier to identify the countries that I haven't been to than the countries that, that I have been to when I start to recount them. But it's, it's been the best part of the job. The best part of the job is going out and meeting the people, seeing the students, talking to the customers, talking to our members, and finding out what it is that we can do for them to help them be more successful. Uh, what's your favorite country? I'm very partial to London and the UK. I've, it just oozes history when you're there. So my background, my genetic background is Irish and British, coming from mostly from my mother's side of the family. So this idea that I'm back in my motherland in a way, yeah, back in the UK. But I, I love China uh, at times can be great and times can be really rough. India is just a really interesting country, unlike any place in the world. <laughs> Africa's got so many great, wonderful people, and the cultures are so different between the different countries there. So I think these, these different countries, you, you, when you're there in these countries, you think, hmm, could I live here? And some of those countries, I wouldn't necessarily want to live there, but it's uh -huh. great to visit and see the, the different cultures. And you, you just have to learn to go with the flow in some of these places. I remember the, the first time I went to India, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. There were just <laughs> so many cars, so many people, but then you go back again and again, and you really learn to appreciate everything about it, the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. And we have an office in the UK as well. So yeah, if we, you wanted to, you could live there. Yeah, right? I, I could like, go over there and, and stay for a while. So we have, we have staff based in the UK. We have people in Germany, the Middle East, India. We used to have some staff in China. We have people in South Africa. So we have people all over the world. But the great thing is wherever you go, people are doing CompTIA. So yeah. there's almost no countries that we go to. I made a stop in Ukraine one time to check on a training partner there to see if they might be a good partner for us. And they were doing work there. There's, there's very few countries that are not doing or teaching some of what we do. We're really setting the global standard for what constitutes the right kinds of skills and knowledge to do these jobs. And we take a lot of pride in that. And in talking about the staff that is located all over the, all over the world, there's differences. Every, we're, we're all different people, all different opinions and, and backgrounds and cultures. How does that affect your leadership style? How is one person who truly you make those main decisions, you guide the organization, how are you able to do that and still appease all of the different people all over the world? Yeah, we, I think it's, it's not so much me, it's the organization as a whole just trying to be as flexible as possible and because we're dealing with students from all over the world it's natural for us to have these these staff that come from different parts of the world and we celebrate their differences I think in good and important ways and recognize we when we do our annual employee engagement surveys that we do every couple of years the international staff and the remote staff are actually a little bit more engaged than the staff here in our Chicago Chicago based offices which is great that we're hey providing. we're engaged too <laughs> yeah we're providing them the tools the platforms the the benefits all the different things 
that are out there. And I think we really embrace that international part of our culture and our business. And it just becomes, you know, part of the same whole, the, the pieces mm-hmm. kind of combine to create more than the individual parts. So in the organization, we take great pride in the culture that's established and, and the support and being able to provide a great work-life balance for employees. What's your process for creating that and then maintaining that now? So when I came into the organization, there were a lot of restrictive rules in place. There was flex time was not necessarily allowed. Their telecommuting was not allowed. There were lots of paper-based processes. So the organization itself needed to be modernized when I came in. So we did a lot of that really fast and really early on in the process to give people more control of their day-to-day work, life, by providing this opportunity for people. But I think a good turning point was when we created our employee culture committee. So we have a group of staff that rotate over time. They serve two-year terms and then rotate on people from all levels and all parts of the organization. And they really drive the culture now. They're making decisions on these changes that we've had around the pandemic. We've had them change the telecommuting rules at time. We switched to a universal plan for employee leave so that people can take unlimited PTO now. So the the culture committee has driven a lot of those. And when things pop up internally, my first response is, well, what does the culture committee think? And they get to do that. But I think for the culture as a whole, it's a very results-oriented culture. So people know that they have to deliver results and they have to to get things done. But I think for most people, that's really motivating. It's not deflating and I don't, I hopefully doesn't cause people too much concern, but the idea that people are always looking at the next new thing, that they're looking at always how to improve things, how to improve not just our culture, but our processes, our products, how we respond to our customers. So it's a culture of continuous improvement. I'm a big believer that nothing ever happens in these big quantum steps, that when you want to get from one point to another point of success, it takes incremental changes that you have to be consistent with and maintain momentum on. So I think Mm -hmm. we try to do that. So try to do that through, we have quarterly staff meetings, we have weekly information updates for our staff to understand how they can be part of what we're doing. We've had people move around in the organization and play different roles in different functions and different departments. So we provide those opportunities, lots of training, lunch and learns to people get a sense of that we're really behind them and that we're really there to support them in all the ways that we can. And I think mm-hmm. if, if you just do that, and we've been voted a best place to work by numerous uh, different uh, publications here, Chicago, Tribune, Cranes, the Daily Herald here, So we're doing something right, but it's a testament to the people because once you get some of these things set up, it's the people that maintain that. But then also the leadership, right? What is your leadership philosophy? Do you, is it top down leadership? Is it up, you know, leading from bottom up? What is your leadership philosophy? I don't know if I can categorize it into, into one particular theme or, or bucket, but I try to set, you know, achievable, but stretch yardsticks. So this idea that we can, we can put ourselves out there so that we always know the direction that we're going. So we're never in a position where we're feeling rudderless, where we don't, we don't kind of know where we're going. That when we know something isn't going to work, we abandon it quickly and we move on so that we don't stay tied down in things which are not producing meaningful results or meaningful uh, feedback to, mm-hmm. to the market, to our employees, so that they don't look at something and be like, why are we doing that? 
I mean, that's yeah. the most deflating thing for a staff person sometimes is to look at a thing. So in those situations, you challenge the people say, well, how would you fix it? How would you change it? So this ability to be very embracing of change. So if, if there if there is one commonality, I think that that I try to do is to get everybody comfortable with a lot of change, mm-hmm. being able to, to be good at being people being comfortable with making that change. Yet it's always going to be scary to make some of these changes. But if they know that you're doing it for the right reasons, that you're doing it with enough resources involved, then you push people forward. And if something isn't working, well, let's let's figure it out and try something different. Because mm-hmm. that's that's one of the things that that people always often stumble on is they think that they have to make these big steps or they have to have everything figured out as opposed to let's just jump in, let's try it, let's do pilots, let's do tests and see how we can do this and then refine it over time. I mean, that's been the Apple philosophy for years with their products, especially early on, is that they would throw them out in the market lesser than they knew they wanted them to be, hoping that the market would tell them what to do. Make Mm -hmm. the screen bigger. This keyboard doesn't work. The computer needs to be faster. This printer isn't working the way we want it to. All these different things that they did early on, especially in the early days of jobs, that was kind of a master class in how to kind of iterate and do things over time because you can't figure out everything. If you sit down and try to write this detailed plan about how something's going to go, the minute you start acting on it, it's going to be out of date because new things will happen. Things you could have never guessed would happen would happen. And so we have to be comfortable making those course corrections. And I I think we developed a culture where we're pretty good at that. And part of that is being able to accept failure or accept that it's not going to work out uh, and then sucking that up and then moving on quickly. Right. And associations are typically really bad at that because they get member constituencies who get wrapped around these projects who want to see them maintain because it's part of their legacy as the member, especially if they've been leading a committee or they're a chair of a committee and they see a project and it goes south or it's not working out. They don't want to kill those. But I think we've been very good. And the the person who leads our membership activity, she's been really good at setting that, that course for the membership team and especially for our member communities that when they see something's not working, she gets them to change course really quickly. And in some associations, they'll have membership groups which are 50 years old and don't even have a reason to exist anymore and haven't maybe for 20 years. We've quickly eliminated those groups and moved on to new groups. So mm-hmm. we're always, always looking for that. But we don't want, you don't want to give away something too early that's still contributing just because it's old or just mm-hmm. because it's been around for a while. You have to keep evaluating yourself and evaluating what you're doing to see if you're doing the right things. Leading a nonprofit, so when you talked about your former organization and then you came here to CompTIA to take on that role of president and, and chief executive officer, why did you choose a, another nonprofit? Is there a difference between leading private entities or public entities versus the nonprofit space? I just, I just like the, the industry one. I mean, you have to like the industry that you work in because there are some nonprofits that are in industries where I'd be like, oh, I don't want to work there. Like, we're not working for the Cement Association. I'm sure cement <laughs> right. is really exciting, but the industry that we get to work in. And the prior organization that I was in was all about tech. So they were the group that produces and owns the Consumer Technology, the Consumer Electronics Show, international show in Las Vegas every year that, that most people know and see in the news. So we got to see all the latest and greatest technology virtually you know, every year come out. So cool. Made views for these, these new technologies get to meet and see lots of really interesting things and people. So when coming to CompTIA, it's still around tech, but it's more around the business of tech. But really, I was interested in, in leading an organization the, and leading an organization that had money to do things. 
So this mm -hmm. idea, it's, it's most associations and nonprofits really struggle to survive. Mm -hmm. Whereas CompTIA has been thriving for years. Even before I arrived, it, it was thriving, having money to do things. But then the next thing is to do great things with the money that you make. So yeah. as a nonprofit, your idea is to spend all the money that you make each year doing good things for the industry. So partially getting the chance to be at the top of, of the organization as the president and CEO, the, the fact that it was a well-financed organization which allowed you to do the things you wanted to do to help the industry and then the industry mm -hmm. itself. And in looking at how you're going to spend that money and how you're going to use the resources that are created uh, within the organization, where do you draw that vision from and uh, thinking about the future? I think we kind of look at taking a more incremental approach. So starting with good examples. So we had certifications for years and it started with one certification called A+, which was around entry-level help desk technicians. These were people who were breaking computers before. The early computers that we had in those early days were really fragile. I mean, you could yeah. shock them and the whole circuit board would be destroyed. So these people that were not competent were out there doing this. So the organization put that one and then they said, hmm, we seem to have been pretty good at that. Let's create another one. And so Network Plus was created where you had the same kind of need to have these network technicians as computers were starting to be put together. Then they said, well, cybersecurity is becoming an issue. So we need Security Plus. So this idea that you're kind of building on what you've done and that provides a lot of the foundation to create a vision for the future. So mm. people and associations and companies, for-profit companies too, get themselves in a lot of trouble by looking too far afield, by saying, okay, we're, we're making A, but now we're going to make Z, when maybe they'd be better off making B or C instead of making mm -hmm. Z, trying to get into these different markets. So I think we try to use that, that platform of things that we develop, the audiences that we have, the customer bases that we have, the partners that we have and try to look to what we can do to enhance their businesses while providing more opportunity. So we try to do things which create, say, new certification and training programs, which are very tangent to what we're doing. Or we look at competitive opportunities in the market where there are existing companies doing something similar where we think we might be able to do it better. And then we look for things which help supplement all of the existing products. And then we look for things which are maybe a little farther afield, but we don't tend to stray from one of those four buckets. So when you put that vision in place, you want to make sure that what you're thinking of doing or the direction that you're heading is going to put you into one of those four buckets and take advantage of those as opposed to doing something which is completely different from what you're doing. So if we decided today that we were going to start, say, a technology trade show, that would be too far afield. That would be going from like A to Z because that's not in or bailiwick, that's not part of, of who we are. We're about creating tools and capability for people to learn and train to get jobs in the tech industry. And as long as we stay within those things, we have lots of room and scope to do what we want. Part of our ability to be able to grow and, and gain traction in this industry and be a thought leader is developing other leaders. Have you found a model that works well within our organization to how your approach to developing other people into great leaders such as yourself? I'm not sure that we have a, we have a really consistent, specific model for that. I think, or how do you find them? Yeah. How do you, what, what do you look for? Well, it's definitely people who have a very high level of emotional intelligence to begin with, people who can communicate, 
people who don't seem out of sorts when you put them into different situations. Someone who would be just as comfortable traveling to Europe as they would be being here in the US, talking to people, recognizing that people are the same in all these places. People who can manage their time effectively, people who can absorb and clarify goals, people who ask really good questions. So there's all these things, people who aren't, if, if someone is more of a talker and not someone who asks questions, that's probably not a good person for leadership necessarily. That might be, they might be good in a different role. But again, when you go back and you, and you actually are responsible for people. So I, I think of leadership in, in this three bucket model. It's I think applicable to your question. So that first bucket, you're a worker and your primary responsibility is to do the things that are asked of you at that time, doing them in a good productive way, making sure that you're asking the right questions about what those things are, that you're understanding why you're doing them, that you're doing them to the best of your ability, that you're innovating in those things where you, where you see opportunities, where you're really kind of stretching yourself. Some people never progress beyond that and that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Some people are really great at those jobs, but the problem is a lot of times the people who distinguish themselves in that role get promoted into the manager bucket. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that you have to learn as a manager in that second tier is that your job now is to make everybody who reports to you as productive as they possibly be. It's not about your individual productivity anymore. You can increase your productivity by 10%, but that's a pittance compared to increasing the productivity of each person that reports to you by 10%. Mm -hmm. It could be a 10 to 1 ratio, depending on how many people you have, that your yeah. job is that. But also then your job is to see where your function fits and how it contributes to the success of the overall organization. Whereas a, as a worker, you're kind of thinking about how your contributions fit in helping your department. But yeah. it goes up a scale when you become, you're trying to think, well, how does my department or my function fit into the organization as a whole? And then you can progress from there to be a leader. And the leader is really thinking about the organization as a whole. It's thinking about how the organization can be more productive and more effective, that they're voicing their concerns consistently, that they're voicing their suggestions about things that need to be improved or fixed or bottlenecks that need to be removed, that they understand and accept the mission and they contribute to identifying goals and the strategy of the organization. And that's a big leap for people too. I think sometimes the leap from a worker to a manager is actually one of the hardest ones. Yeah. Then being able to go from a manager to a leader where you're, you're thinking about, okay, it's not just about my own staff anymore, even the people in my own team. I'm part of a bigger thing now, and I'm mm -hmm. responsible to the organization, not just to the department that I'm leading or the functions that I'm in. You're, you're playing a different role there. I can look at just about anybody in, in our organization and see where they are on that spectrum. So identifying people who are either on one of those dots or between one of those dots are you constantly doing that as, as in your role? Are you constantly assessing everyone on, on, in the team and saying, hmm, this, is, this is this person, this is that person? In, that we in, in some ways, I don't have as much. We've had a lot of new hires recently, so I'm probably a little <laughs> behind on some of that. Yeah. But I, I try to do that. I try to have a very good sense of how each person is contributing within the organization and what's their capacity to contribute in what ways. Because again, some people are going to stay at one of the tiers and that's perfectly fine. It doesn't mean anything about them as a worker or as a person. They might be contributing at that level, but maybe they don't want to progress beyond that or maybe that's just not something that which is in the in the cards because it does take a, a different level of dedication sometimes. It does take a different level of outlook. 
And also, what do you want to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? If some mm -hmm. people really like to have their hands really in in the cooking, you know, when they're in the trenches, the work, yes. Right? As opposed yeah. to having to think a little more the theoretically, a little bit more what if, having to mm -hmm. do the analysis on that. I think it's it just depends on the individual person. And we absolutely need people from across that whole spectrum. You can't run an organization with all leaders or all right. managers. When you look at the organization as a whole, what are those main components that you absolutely need in terms of people and skills and resources? In our organization, it's definitely that ability to adapt, adapt to change because the industry is changing, our industry is changing, so the tech industry is constantly changing with new products, new challenges. Our product mix, the focus that we have is changing over time. It doesn't change, as, none of the, those things change as fast as people think or as it appears sometimes they don't. But I think the ability to adopt, adapt to change is really important. The ability to, to communicate effectively with, with others and not look at things from your own perspective, but look at things from that more global perspective. How does what I'm doing fit in? Am I contributing positively to the progression of the organization or am I getting in the way of it? Being honest with yourself about that. Be willing to take feedback from other people to understand how things can be improved and that it's not just about what you want to happen. Mm -hmm. People who do that are looked at as bottlenecks in the organization. People who are not flexible, who are not willing to change. But then it's incumbent upon the leadership and me in particular to be I think the biggest challenge that we have and lots of organizations have is they think that if they communicate goals and objectives one time, that's enough. Yeah. You have to be constantly communicating your goals and objectives and be consistent in those. As I said at the beginning, okay, we're trying to get people jobs. We're trying to create mechanisms where anybody can, can train for these careers. We're trying to get employers to accept these individuals as equal for college degrees. You know, all these different talking points we have, you just have to make sure that you're consistently reiterating those to people internally so that they can communicate them to their teams. Mm -hmm. So people who report to me directly, they should be just as good at communicating the value propositions, goals, strategies of the organization as me. So they mm -hmm. can constantly be communicating those to their team because people want that reinforcement and that old adage that you have to tell someone something at least three times before it actually starts to, to click with them is very true. You mentioned emotional intelligence a few times, and I want to just settle on that for a few minutes and, and talk about what is emotional intelligence and how do you teach other people to also grow in that area? I think at some point I got very interested in personality typing systems. So the Enneagram, which I think is a terrific yeah. system. What number are you? <laughs> I think I'm, a, I'm an achiever. So I'm like, I'm a two. Three. I think that's, I think a, that's a three. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that system because it's not static. Yeah. When you're having a bad day, you take on the worst characteristics of that, that group that's the, tri the triad to you. Yeah. And when you're really in the flow, you take on the best characteristics of, of that other triad. But when you're in mm -hmm. your steady state, that's what your basic number is. And most of the other systems are static in the sense of like a Myers-Briggs. Mm -hmm. I'm an ENTJ. Well, and sometimes I've been an ENTP, but most of the time I'm an ENTJ. But that's static. That's just what you are. But as you know, self-exploration, I've read tons and tons of self-help books over time. 
but I got interested in that and that led me to understand more about emotional intelligence. But this, this guy, this concept, he did research to find out that people that had these skills in the highest levels tended to be the most successful people because they could moderate their emotions. They didn't go off on rash tangents. They considered things. They asked good questions. They communicated effectively with people. They recognized that maybe that person is just having a bad day and didn't discount that person. They recognized when they needed to help others and when they needed to push others. That self-realization and being very present and aware of what's happening around you and how that's influencing those people and how they're behaving, that's really to me what, what that's about. So it's not going off the handle. It's not saying things about somebody else behind their back. It's not mm-hmm. being that, that snide person. Divisive. Right, being divisive, being confrontational. So- it's being and understanding what the situation is and what's required to accomplish the goal and staying focused on that. What would you say are some of those very detrimental aspects of team building? You mentioned divisiveness and, and being confrontational. What are those you know, areas that you're like, this is an absolute X, you cannot cross this line if you're in this team. Have you ever, I'm sure you have dealt with these things. How do you deal with those and what are they? I think the, the idea that you would raise your voice to somebody else, that you would yell at someone, that you might stand up and smack the table to be that. Um, no I know one's, that has someone done that to you? No. No, um, that, that's, a, that's not happened to me, but that was something that I, we wouldn't tolerate in our organization. No. I always say that if I found out a manager yelled at an employee about something, I would probably fire that person because we just wouldn't tolerate that kind of, that kind of leadership or that kind of behavior in the organization. It doesn't mean that you don't confront issues mm-hmm. right away. Make sure that you, when you have an issue between two people, get them talking, get them figuring it out. And maybe you have to come back to that same table two or three times until they finally resolve the issue. But you can't allow people to harbor these resentments, these concerns, these beliefs without getting them on the table. So I think it's about transparency. It's about willing to accept what someone's saying, even if you don't like what you're hearing, to listen to that and think about it honestly, whether they're actually true or whether that's just their perspective, because you have to be able to, to do that. Because a lot of times, you know, people's whole life experience has determined kind of who they are. So if you were, you believe one thing in particular, but suppose your parents died when you were young and you got adopted by another family, you might be believing something completely different. So these beliefs and that people harbor are just these transient things. So when you bring them to light sometimes and put them in front of people, it it helps them get rid of those things quickly. But Mm -hmm. the five dysfunctions of a team, which I think goes hand in hand, which is the book by Patrick Lencioni, which goes hand in hand with emotional intelligence really goes to this point about your true team is the, are the people at your peer level. And you need to make sure that those people that you have clear lines of honest communication between those individuals at that peer level. So there's not this sense of mistrust. There's not this backbiting. There's not this people coming to me and saying, well, they're doing this thing. And I'm like, well, what are you talking to me? Go talk to them. Yeah, I bet you get that all the time. <laughs> kind of so, like so, the parent, like <laughs> with children wanting the parent to interfere. <laughs> I th- not as I think we do a very good job with that, I think. It's, it's very difficult for peers to work with peers. I think this is, this is the most difficult thing in organizations is when you have levels of peers working with each other because no one wants to step out. And when you step out to take leadership, 
the other people are like, wow, look at that person. Wow. Look what they're, they're trying to do. Yeah. Very difficult for peers to work effectively with peers. So it's not an easy thing. I don't want to make it sound like that, but it's a crucial thing that even if you have disagreements, they're above board and that you address them quickly. So I think that's what I try to do is when I see these, these disagreements is to get those people talking so that they're addressing them right away instead of letting any of the things fester and harbor over time because they'll always be there in the back of their mind even if yeah. they kind of it's not in the front of their mind anymore it'll always be at the back and it it colors the way that they interact with those people how would you advise someone who is on a t- who is looking to advance they're not in that leadership role yet and they have their team and, and granted this is a different time right because people are working working virtually now and it's it's different we'll, I'll get to that in a minute but how would you ad- advise someone who wants to step out but is scared who is still maybe not sure what would you say in terms of wanting to become of, of, in more yes. of a leadership role yes Mm-hmm. Think, and also worried about their peers as well, because I right. think that's a, an excellent point. Well, the other, the other skill set that's really crucial is your ability to mobilize people to your cause. And this is one of the things that, that good leaders really do. They're able to rally people to their ideas. Mm-hmm. So if you, have, if you have good ideas, getting other people to buy into those and wanting them to be part of that by being able to set out what, what you can accomplish if you all come together. I think one of, the, one of the really important things to do early on when you're trying to understand emotional intelligence is just kind of take yourself back a little bit and just watch the behavior of the people in a room or, or really be very conscious of your interactions with people. What's their body language like? What's the tone of their voice like when certain things are coming up? What are their, ask them questions about what their priorities are. What is it that they're trying to accomplish? What is bothering them right now? What's keeping them up at night? Asking these questions is really good because then it helps you do that on your own self-evaluation of those things. All that knowledge can then fuel the way that you position things, the way that you put things together, the way that you go about building that coalition of people around a particular initiative. If you do that effectively, it won't look like you're stepping on anybody. It won't look like you're trying to take someone's job or take away something from them. It's rallying their support. You're asking their help. The best thing that you can do is ask somebody for a favor instead of, instead of, is that the best thing? Because sometimes we don't want to burden people for favors. We don't want to ask, but the way to get someone bought in. And I watched the show billions and there's a character on the show called Chuck Rhodes. And his dad said he gave them that advice. He's trying to, he was trying to do something for kind of, bad means, but I think the, the point the point is well taken that if you want to gain somebody's trust, ask them for their help, that you're trusting them, that, that you want their help. Now, do it honestly. Don't do it just because you're patronizing them and yeah. doing that, but where someone can be there, asking them to be part of what you're doing is, the, is one of the best things you can give that person and shows your trust in them and how you feel about, about them as an individual and they'll trust you more and want to be part of something. If you just tell someone you're going to do something and always be that person who never asks for help, that, that makes you kind of separate and, and aloof almost in a way because yeah. you're seen as someone, well, I don't need anybody's help for that. Everybody needs other people's help. So asking for help is not a weakness. It's a strength and it's an emotional intelligence strength. When in your career have you really needed help? Right. This is a challenge for me. So the, this, you know, being able to, I'm always that, that person, it seems like the people come to me looking yeah, the for, fixer, 
fixer, problem solver. So I, I try to do that through asking, you know, doing a lot of walking around through the staff and understanding what their challenges are, what they're doing. That's where I'm asking for their help. I'm asking for their help in telling me whether we're doing the right things, whether we're doing the right, taking the right approach, whether we're mm -hmm. pursuing the right goals. And sometimes I understand that through their actions and sometimes through their words. If I see people like, if I, if I suggest something and they really jump on it, and you, wow, this is great. Yeah, we're going to do this. Then you kind of just stand back and let it go. So that, that happens in, so it, it, it can happen in multiple ways, but it, it's, it's a challenge for people as they progress through their careers to, to be that vulnerable, to ask or for that assistance. I've, I, you know, I do, I've done it sometimes, but it's a harder thing for me to do. I'll admit that. One of the questions I always ask us is who are the three pivotal people in your life who are the helpers in your life who've stepped in? Maybe not, maybe you haven't specifically asked for help or went in a position where you, you really needed that help, but uh, undoubtedly there's probably some times or people in your life that have pivoted to you. Can you identify who those people are for you? I think of, of one person in particular, and I didn't really interact with him that long. I went to Appalachian State for a semester when I moved from the West Coast to gain my in-state residency to go to college in North Carolina. And I was on a journalism track, actually, because I like to write and was thinking of becoming a journalist. And one of the classes that they asked you to take was a business class. So I took an economics class and I did really, really well. And the professor took an interest in me because he saw that, okay, here's this, this journalism student who comes into my econ class and he's getting the, the best grades in the class. And he, he took me aside a couple of times and said, you know, you really seem to, to do well with these concepts. Maybe you should consider pursuing economics as a degree. And I would not be, even though this was a short engagement, I, I met with this guy for you know, a semester of school, but I would not be where I am today if he had not put me on that track because that, what I did and, and all the things that, that came as a result of that would have never come if he hadn't done that. So that's a really, really pivotal moment for me that, that one time. And then I think some of the professors that I had in my undergrad who, who took a real interest in me in a way that really helped me want to be successful and want to achieve and want to succeed in the classes and get the best grades and and all these things. I was not a good student in high school. I, I probably had a 3.15 GPA. We had work release in the afternoon. So I was going to my part-time jobs in the afternoons and not going to classes. I was going to be a welder when I came out of high school. So this idea that I would go to, to school and end up where I, where I am, you know, I would have never thought that at the time, obviously, but that, yeah. that one engagement with that professor, and he wasn't a particularly, it was a little, kind of a nasty guy, but he was pretty nice to me. And, and I would raise my hand in class and give the answers and stuff. And when he pulled me aside that time and I was like, you know, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe I'll do this. And so I did. And I certainly wouldn't be where I am without that guy. That's interesting. I had a similar experience in, in high school. I thought I was going to be a barber like my mom. And I didn't, every, all of my friends were talking about going to college and I was not on my radar and I took one class and I had a work study program. So in the afternoon I went to work and I took it for that reason. That's the only reason why I took that class was because it got me out of school early. And I met this professor who brought in a lawyer to you know, provide some work-based learning while in high school. And the lawyer had this super cool case he was working on with the Lyle Water Company, almost like the Aaron Brockovich story. Right. And he just said, I was so quiet. I was afraid to speak up. And at the end we had to do this one debate 
and I, I was so scared and I prepared well. He's like, you should be a lawyer. And, and after that, I'm like, I'm going to be a lawyer. This is it. I, this is my path. I think it speaks to the power of people in your life, particularly at that impressionable age um, who see something in you or, or at least nurture the gifts that you already have. I guess. Right. The, someone who can see past any of the, the issues that you might have and, and think of what kind of visualize you down the road where yes. they, can, they can imagine you being when you can't I, imagine for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So who do you turn to now for advice, right? You're at the top of the food chain in your sphere of, of work, at least professional. Who do you go to when you are struggling and, and have an answer that you're not, you're not sure of? Who do you go to now? Well, the great thing is we have a fantastic board of directors, and we've had lots of great individuals who have been on the board during my tenure. So I always have the board to lean on, whether it's the chair of the board or any of the other board members. They're always a fantastic resource. And the first group I go to probably is, is some of those individuals. But then the people that are on our executive team here we talk about stuff all the time, whether it's strategy for the organization, whether it's resource deployment, whether it's issues that we're having within the organization, there's a constant dialogue going on among those. So I think we all kind of can lean on each other and get feedback from each other about different things. So we're very lucky in that. So it's not, it's not lonely or isolating in that sense. I have lots of people I can go to. And how do you unwind when you need to get away from work and when you need to take a break? How do you recognize you're in that space? And what do you do to, to uh, help yourself during those times? I, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to not kind of hang on to, to those things. I don't necessarily feel stressed really at any really? point in time. Ever? The, the, like Even very, now? Very, very rarely. It's, it's, it's a situation where I'm always looking so far ahead that I don't get caught up in what's happening in the moment. I call this the, I call it the fallacy of now, that people think that what's happening to them now is, is what's going to happen to them forever, or that what's yeah. happening now is so amazing compared to what's <laughs> going to happen in the future. So I think because I, I think uh, relatively far down the road at, at the most, most times and trying to think about where we want to end up or where I want, want to end up, maybe more so the organization probably than myself, but I also keep myself like really busy doing different things, whether it's working on something around my house, whether it's learning a new skill, whether it's cooking a new dish, whether it's I thrive on the new and the, the new challenge that exists. So keeping those things, it's, it's, the, it's the times where I don't have some of those things where I can tend to fall into a little bit more of kind of the negative situation. But as long as I keep myself very busy, keep myself looking forward and thinking ahead, I don't fall victim to that very often. Is there times when you are negative? And if you are, how do you pull yourself up? How do you lift yourself up when you're in that space? And some people get through those things in different ways. Sometimes they just want to talk them out and be heard. Sometimes people can journal and those things. Sometimes, I mean, that's uh, during time. So I said, I write some short stories and some poetry. So yeah. sometimes in life I've done that where I've, I've just had something and I need to do something else. That's something that's so immersive that I'll be completely out of that mindset. Sometimes just a good night's rest does, does the whole thing. And you realize in the morning that it wasn't nearly as, as important or as, had as much gravity as you thought at the time. Most of the time with, there's a saying for that, I think, in the morning's light, these things are not as important as they were. You, you just kind of have to get, get past that. And then think about, okay, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? 
if, if this were to happen. And then you kind of realize, well, that's not even that bad. It's, it's, it's about doing those what ifs and thinking about what those are, running through all those scenarios in your head where people get themselves into trouble. So there's a really good book written by the guy, Richard Carlson, who wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And mm-hmm. it's a book called Living at the Speed of Life. And he talks about people who are in the flow and then people who are, I don't remember what the other thing was called, but it was people who are kind of ruminating. And he draws this example early in the book of this woman who's in traffic and she starts to think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late. Oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to be late to the meeting. My boss is going to be really disappointed. I'm going to get fired. Oh gosh, I'm going to get fired. And then my husband's going to lose his job and then we're going to lose our children. And before she's even moved 10 feet in the traffic, she's already thrown herself into such a lather that if she had just stopped and recognized, okay, it's not that I'm going to be late. <laughs> that a lot of that is just self-defeating talk that, that people go through and not being able to get out of that. So whatever means you have to use, whether it's distracting yourself with something out, going for a run, writing it out in a journal, talking to someone about it, I think it's important to quickly get those things out and get some perspective. That's where people run into issues of anxiety, depression that come from uh, some of those issues where you let those things just kind of linger. And sometimes it's really difficult to get those out of your head, but you have Mm -hmm. to do everything you can to try. That's why meditation, yoga, other things like that have been really successful with, with some people more so than, than antipsychotic drugs and some other things too. Those, those have a role to play with certain situations and people, but just finding that mechanism that allows you to trigger that and get that out of your head is so important. So are you saying during this whole pandemic, during 2020, this this year, you have not been stressed. I, I, I you know, there's been times, but I, I, I don't think I've been significantly stressed where I was like, you know, pulling my hair out or, or feeling really anxious or stressed or having a panic attack or anything like that. So I, I, I try to keep myself informed about what's happening, understand where things go. You just take a con- maybe I'm just more pragmatic on some of these things. And I'm thinking of far like, okay, this is eventually going to work itself out. We just kind of have to ride our way through it. Uh-huh. And and worrying about whether you're going to get it or not. Okay, if you get it, you'll have to deal with it. So it's it's just one of those things. But that's just me. That that doesn't mean that that that's right or that's better than than what some other person might be going through. But it's just not my natural tendency to to do that. In the last five years, what practice or belief or habit has most improved your life? Would you say? Do you have? That's one? a very good question. I'm trying to think about. The, I think the I've taken up riding my bike a lot more in the last five years and not wearing any headphones. Road bike uh, or a, motorcycle? A trail, bike, a trail bike. Bicycle. Oh, a trail bike. Oh, bicycle. <laughs> so I, I live very close to the Prairie Path, which is a long path that runs through the whole Chicago land area. And being able to, to ride that bike without any headphones, listening to no music, just using it almost as a meditation. Mm-hmm. Really pay attention to the sound of the tires on the trail notice the trees and the birds and the sky and the air and all these different things, it provides an opportunity for that. I mean, I, I do yoga regularly, do meditation occasionally. So these, these things that allow you to do that in other ways that, that I work out, I've probably done, you know, done more hit exercise, uh, the high intensity interval training exercise mm-hmm. over the last few years. So I, I really enjoy doing those things, learning new skills, reading new things. So it's, you know, constantly looking at those things. But over the last five years, you know, the addition to that has probably been the biking. Do you do off-roading at all? 
So not off trailing, I guess, dirt yeah, biking. There, there are some good places to go, but a lot of times the trails are so loose, they're actually not that, not that good to ride on. I, I, I enjoy just doing it almost as, as I said, as a meditation. meditation. So I'll, I'll go out and do about a 20-mile round trip from where I live. It's very flat here in the Chicago area, as you know, and <laughs> so we, it, it takes a long time to find some hills to get any amount of exercise. So what would you say right now with us being virtual, teams being virtual, everybody's kind of sequestered in their homes or working remotely. What are your thoughts on that going forward? How is this going to change? And, and how do you, you know, what's your approach with dealing with the adjustment? I think we had a really good experience with our staff already working remotely a couple days a week. So we made the transition to remote work, I think, pretty well. There were a few people, it was funny, I think we had more people who had never worked remote, a handful of those people who were like, well, I don't know about this. But then after a couple of weeks of doing it, they're like, wow, this is great. I should have been doing this all along. <laughs> yeah. But the, I think the thing that I'm most concerned about losing is the spontaneity that comes with face-to-face -face communication and the ability to have sidebars, the ability to have that moment where someone says, wait, let's do this. And they get up and draw something on a whiteboard. And, and I'm a big whiteboard drawer, so I like to do that. So maybe that's why I'm thinking of that. But I think <laughs> we lose that spontaneity in these Brady Bunch grids of Zoom meetings where it's kind yeah. of like wait your turn and talk and don't talk over each other because you can't hear. But in an in-person setting, that's actually a positive. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how we'll end up using our office space. We're going to allow people to work 100% remote probably going forward in the future. So I'm not sure how our office space will get used and whether people will come in. I don't think we'll ever go back to a time where we'll have as many people in the office as we had before the pandemic. And that's okay. That's, I don't see that as any kind of issue or, you know, there's some people that are like, well, I can't wait for my staff to all get back together. I'm thinking, well, some of them probably are not thinking that. Yeah. Because they want to, they've learned that even getting that one hour a day back that they were getting from commuting is huge in their life. So anything that people that we can do to provide greater life satisfaction. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that the person who wins is the person who has the biggest net happiness. Yes. And however that comes in life through whatever means they use that doesn't hurt other people that I think anything that we can contribute to the employees net happiness is what we should do. What makes you most happy? What makes your heart smile? Uh, I think seeing people accomplish things that they didn't know they could achieve. I've gone skydiving a few times and I've taken a couple of people skydiving that, that had done, hadn't done it before and never thought they could, but to see their reactions when they got on the ground and they were just like, this is the most awesome thing in the world. Uh -huh. I think that pets, I, I'm a big pet person, dogs in particular. So those are dog make, dad <laughs> that make me, make me happy. Yeah. Um, before we close, I have uh, just a few. Can I ask you a few just fun questions? Sure. So what do you eat for breakfast? It, it depends. So I used to be a really big cereal eater. So I would have Oh, really? Cereal. Which one? All kinds of different cereals. Okay. No favorites? Big, uh, Frosted oh, Fruit Loops, Alphabets, <laughs> Cocoa Puffs. I, was, I had Cocoa Puffs for a long time. Nothing really healthy. But currently, okay. I'm on a breakfast biscuit run. So I've been, I think I have, I've 
really oh, gotten the, the buttermilk like, biscuits down to a science. So I'm making my own sausage and egg biscuits or Canadian bacon and egg and cheese biscuits and then making them and then having one of those a day. And then I'll usually have a, a shake from this company called Ample, which provides these product and you get a use almond milk with these, these shakes. They're really good. That's what I eat yeah. for breakfast. But I, I'm not a big breakfast person. My stomach okay. is not very big in the morning, so I really can't eat that much. I'm not, I don't get that hungry. Ever? ever. And the less Are you, I, So you, do you crave food? Do you not, have a, not really. No? And the less I eat, oh. the, the less hungry I get, which is bad because I've always struggled to maintain weight. So. Well, you're so tall too, though. Yeah, it's, you know. I, but I, I, I need to remind myself to eat. Okay. I, I, don't, I really cannot... <laughs> I can't understand that. I, I can't. Yeah, most people can. It's I'm, it's a it's a problem that a lot, I'm sure a lot of people would like to have, but it's yeah. Like I, I wake I'm, up I'm and I think that about I have food. It, but <laughs> I'm thankful yeah. that I have it, but at sometimes it it can go a little bit too much. Do you wake up early though, I'm or not, or what time do you wake up? Uh, it depends. A better question is when do I get out of bed? So oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, lately, the New York Times has this new game that's a spelling bee. And lately, I've been waking up and doing the spelling bee before I get out of bed. So for the time between I wake up when I get out of bed is usually at least an hour. So I'm usually laying in bed for an hour after I wake up. Uh-huh, I'm, I'm generally then, not an, a morning person. It's not, I'm like not grumpy or angry. I'm just, I, you know, that's just too early. Like people who tell me they get up at, at four or five in the morning, I'm just like, that's, that's not even good for you. You're like, why? Yeah. Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> it can't even be good for you. Do you stay up late? I'm definitely more of a night owl person. And in fact, it's at certain points in time, I would say my most productive hours during the day were probably between 10 and 2 a.m. I agree with you. I, I, I can identify with that, mainly because of my kids. But My most creative hours during that time, I used to do a lot of computer programming during a period, and I would write huge amounts of code during those four hours. Wow. What's your most embarrassing public moment? Hmm. I think uh, standing up on stage with my fly down one time. That happened. No. <laughs> I don't think anybody in the audience recognized it, but someone text, texted me during the presentation, which I didn't see because my phone was backstage. But they said, um, by the way, your fly is down. Oh, my goodness. That's That's, probably, that is embarrassing. That's probably up there. Do you have a junk drawer in your house? No, I'm definitely very organized with, with stuff. I usually go through everything I own every six months and get rid of anything I'm not using. So you take inventory? I'm not, I'm not taking, I'm taking a mental inventory, but I yeah. can go through stuff and be like, I didn't use that. I'm never going to use that again. And I get rid of it. And you so I, like Goodwill, I got a Goodwill pile three, four times a year. <laughs> I was going to ask you your favorite meal, but you're not a food person. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm definitely, I love food. I just, like I said, I don't get that hungry. But if, if I was going to have a meal where you said, okay, this is the last meal you could have, it would have to be a New York strip steak with, with the whole, maybe the lobster mac and cheese, Ooh. a really nice big romaine salad with really good Caesar, Caesar dressing. Yeah, I definitely, I like steak, love Italian, love Thai food. I love all foods, Indian food, but I think if there was something that was going to sit on my tongue for the last time, it would have to be something like that. Something like that. Uh, when you go to 7-Eleven, what's your favorite, what, what is your go-to snack? 
So back- or, or it doesn't have to be 7-Eleven. It could be just like any type of convenience store. I love, love donuts. So they have, a, they have a pretty good old-fashioned donut at 7-Eleven. So I'll, I'll get okay. those sometime. I had a recent stretch of nine months where I didn't eat any sugar at all. No fruit, no liquid sugar, no, no treats of any kind. But then I, I recently broke that. I was going to go for a year, but there was no reason to. That's a long time. What was the motivation for doing that? Challenging? Uh, just, to, just to see how I would feel and the difference. It actually really helped my sleep because I'm not a great sleeper. Mm-hmm. So this idea of, of having less sugar and I slept much, much better when I went off the sugar. Did you notice any other health benefits to that? Skin uh, or energy? I think the energy was more even throughout the day. You didn't tend to have these peaks and valleys. So I, I would recommend it for anybody because you, you, you'll never realize there's a great movie documentary called That Sugar Film, which is really good where this guy eats. He eats the equivalent number of calories. So I think the calorie recommendation where he was in New Zealand was 2,000 calories a day. So what he did was he ate... 2000 calories a day, but he didn't worry about how much sugar he was eating. And even though he was eating the equivalent number of calories, his health declined dramatically. Wow. From the, from the increased sugar intake. That's, I mean, that's a good thing. I, I don't know if I, I'm sure I could do it. I haven't had the motivation to try the no sugar thing. Though. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm sure you eat a, a pretty reasonable diet, but some people are eating a lot more sugar than they realize. If you're, yeah. if you're drinking more than one soda a day, you're consuming a gigantic amount of sugar. Mm-hmm. Well, Todd, thank you. I appreciate you for, for coming on and being a supporter of, of the podcast and helping personally with, with myself and, and being a mentor. I can't thank you enough. So I appreciate that. Oh, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Same. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.